Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's episode is a big one. It is with Angie Kim, author of Happiness Falls, which was just announced as the latest Good Morning America book club pick. You may recognize Angie's name from her incredible Edgar winning Miracle Creek, which was her debut novel. It was also named the best book of the year by the Washington Post, Kirkus, and the Today Show, among others. It was such a delight to get to talk with Angie, not just about her latest book, Happiness Falls, but about her passion. And it was all about this idea of how we think of communication and intelligence and people's ability to speak and communicate and how those things are related. Basically, we look at whether or not we consider someone quote unquote smart by the way that they are able to communicate. And this really plays in well with her novel, Happiness Falls. And when you read the book, and I highly recommend that you do, you'll understand exactly what we mean. This conversation was fantastic. And we also get into her upbringing, how she came over from Korea, moved to the States, and the both struggle and incredible opportunity that that provided. Just a really inspiring, wonderful and just phenomenal story of a human being who is now written two stunning novels. Um, so you're absolutely going to love this conversation. And again, if you hadn't planned on reading Happiness Falls, which just came out, you're going to need to. It's just that good of a book. Another book that I think you should check out, just give you a book recommendation here real quick. I finished up Horse by Geraldine Brooks recently. It's a really interesting story. It is a book that has multiple timelines, one of them in present day and one in 1850. It is the story of a discarded painting that a person finds in a junk pile, a skeleton in an attic, and the greatest racehorse in American history. These three strands are tied together in this really really interesting story. And there's a lot of it that I, I didn't know was actually based on uh, true facts, things that actually did happen, which made me enjoy the story even more so after the fact. So that's Horse by Geraldine Brooks. I really, really enjoyed it. I think you will as well. And I know for a fact you're going to adore Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. If you want to get in touch with me, give me feedback on the show, ask for book recommendations, or just say hi, you can always do that by emailing me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. You can also find me on YouTube 
TikTok and Instagram and that same name, Passions and Prologues. I'm doing book recommendations and just general bookish chat across all those different social media platforms. All right, that is all the housekeeping. I am delighted to say that I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Angie Kim, best-selling author of Happiness Falls on Passions and Prologues. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Okay, Angie, what is something that you are super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? Okay, so I want to talk to you about two different things that are rooted in the same experience that I'm super passionate about. And I'm going to tell you about the experience first. Okay. Okay. And then I'll like a little suspense until I say what the the passion is. Okay, so it all stems from my experience being a Korean immigrant. Mm -hmm. I moved from Korea, from Seoul to the Baltimore area as an 11 year old in Mm -hmm. middle school. And I'm an only child. And back in Korea, we were super poor, no running water, outhouse. We lived in the spare room of another family's house, Mm -hmm. my parents and me, all of that sort of stuff. So when we found out that we were going to be moving to the Baltimore area by the sponsorship of my aunt who was living here, and she was a nurse at Johns Hopkins, Everybody said, including my parents and me, like, it's like we won the lottery, you know, Mm -hmm. and because we went there and sure enough, I was so excited. I had my own bedroom for the first time. I had, you know, indoor (laughs) plumbing, which Mm -hmm. is an amazing thing when you have never seen it before. Color TVs, which I had never seen, all of this stuff. And it was like a dream come true. And I should have been so, so happy. Mm -hmm. But a couple of things happened. One is because we were really poor, my parents started running a grocery store in sort of the really bad neighborhood area in downtown Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And they had really long hours and it was a kind of store that was closed in bulletproof glass and all of this sort of stuff. And it was really dangerous. And so they actually ended up sleeping in a cupboard in the back because the hours were so long. And so I never saw them. Mm-hmm. And so I went from being in the same room with them, being best friends with my mom to never seeing them and really missing them intensely. And the other thing that happened was that I didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. So I went overnight from feeling like a pretty smart, you know, gregarious, extroverted girl with lots of friends to not understanding or being able to speak anything Yeah, and feeling pretty stupid and feeling really embarrassed. 
Mm-hmm. And so I actually became kind of miserable instead of, you know, winning the lottery and being like having this happy, amazing life. Objectively, my life was great, but subjectively, I was pretty miserable and I longed to go back to Korea. And that's actually a lot of what my first novel, Miracle Creek, was about. So the two passions are number one is this idea of happiness, relativity Mm -hmm. of happiness, objective versus subjective views of happiness, micro Mm -hmm. versus macro views of happiness, everything you can think of. I studied philosophy in college and I became a lawyer, but even as a lawyer, I studied jurisprudence, which is sort of the philosophy of law. And it's all been rooted in sort of my thinking about these types of things, about what life means and what happiness means and Mm -hmm. what we should be pursuing. So that's number one. And then the second thing is interrogating the assumption that I recognized in myself and everybody else through this experience, which is the assumption that I think we as a society have that equates oral fluency with intelligence. Yeah. So I know as soon as you said that, it clicked. And, yeah. and I definitely know I like I'm following what you mean. But for listeners, do you want to kind of clarify? Because it, it's such a good point. And I don't want to kind of step over how, how you're going to talk about it. But let's do the, the, the second one first. I want to circle back to the. Sure. the yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. But, of but course. can you kind of go a little bit deeper and, and explain that for my listeners just so they can kind of help make the connection as to what you're referring to? Absolutely. I think we as a society have a deep assumption that's really, really hard to root out that equates how well you speak and how Mm -hmm. fluently you speak with your intelligence level. Mm -hmm. We assume that if you speak fluently and, you know, well, and use big words and talk fast, that you are smart. And that if you stutter or you have an accent or you can't speak the language, or if you're autistic or like the character in my novel, Happiness Falls, Eugene, who's 14, he has something called Angelman syndrome, which is a rare genetic disorder. And mm-hmm. he also has autism. He has a dual diagnosis and he cannot speak. We assume that that must be a cognitive deficit. Mm-hmm. And we assume that that means that you don't have thoughts. Yeah. And My experience as an immigrant and, you know, being limited in English is obviously not anywhere near the level of trauma that non-speakers have as a result of something like autism or Angelman syndrome, because Mm -hmm. they have that their entire lives and they don't have any outlet. Whereas I at least had a little outlet in Korean, right? When I was around uh, other Korean people, even though I didn't really have that in the school that I attended in middle school, which was a very painful experience, Mm -hmm. but it's, I'm not saying that they're the same at all because they're, you know, qualitatively, quantitatively so, so different, but it is a similar experience. And it's something that I have become so passionate about. And I've written a novel about it. And also I have started volunteering. So I teach creative writing classes to Mm non-speakers who use alternative means of communication, methods of communication by spelling words out one letter at a time on the spelling Mm -hmm. board. And I teach three classes. Uh, I've been teaching three classes this summer, one in person and two 
virtual. And so like, this is something that I'm so excited about. I really want to try to figure out why our society has this assumption. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, even our president has talked about it, right? The stuttering thing. And people really assume that if you stutter, that you must not be as intelligent. And even though we know, like we intellectually know, Mm -hmm. my parents who have a really thick Korean accent, sometimes I find myself, I, you know, and I think about this all the time. I sometimes find myself thinking like being frustrated with them and being like, why can you not, you know, get the syntax right? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if if you have thoughts on why people why you think society is like that? Because like, I think about when you were discussing this, thinking about a good friend of mine who has been on the, the show, uh, Kimberly Latrice Jones. Kim has written a number of novels, both with Geely Siegel and then by herself. And she is a spokesperson. She, she lives in Atlanta and she works with Warner Brothers doing like production, all these different things. And she went incredibly viral for this video that came out during the pandemic. She was, um, she's African-American and she was, helping clean up after the protests from the George Floyd situation. And this video came out. It was basically her. It was like a, like a quote unquote man on the street interview with her about why things are going on the way they are. And she was speaking just like a very frustrated human being. Kim is incredibly intelligent and she will talk about all the time. And she's told me this about like, I'll have a conversation with her in person and then she'll go up on, onto a stage and it's like a code switch where she literally knows I have to come off as more quote unquote, like I have to use a different vernacular. I have to sound more intelligent so people will respect me, even though if I say it the way that I would normally talk to my friends, it's the exact same information. And I definitely understand like what she's talking about. And I've, I've seen her do this from time to time, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why our society looks at people who a, are either speaking a language that's their second or third or oftentimes like fourth language as somehow less intelligent. And then as you said, like people who may not have the ability to speak, have you seen any like research or articles or like doing like doing this work by, you know, working with these people? Have you had any insight into why you think society is this way? I mean, that's one of the things that a lot of my characters talk about in the novel and something Mm -hmm. that I've talked to a lot of people about. I think that there are theories of linguistics and things like that, that talk about sort of, and certainly of code switching and, and things like that, that go on there. I do think that it's rooted in the fact that, you know, language is something that for a long time is how people expressed intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how they sort of discussed ideas and things like that. And so many of the sort of earlier notions, and it's it's very ableist, I think, you know, and also yeah, yeah. there's a lot of cultural assumptions and racism in it too. So like, for example, one of my characters in Happiness Falls, who is biracial, who is Korean and American, meaning white, mm-hmm. um, white American, and her mom is a Korean immigrant. And she talks about the fact that um, it's so interesting to think about the fact that we use the phrase broken English. Mm-hmm. But think about it. Like, has do we use that for, you know, French people who 
you know, have a really heavy French accent and mm-hmm. maybe use, you know, weird syntax and things like that. I've never heard it no. referred to in that context. We refer to it in terms of, you know, Asian immigrants, African immigrants, you know, brown, black, yellow. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is something to the idea of language is such an intimate thing. And you sort of use it to judge what a person's socioeconomic background is, what, Mm -hmm. um, and of course that is rooted in our perceptions of intelligence too. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of these things just sort of like come together and, you know, meld into this weird conception that we have of language and what that means for people. And when somebody can't speak, um, you know, we call even like the, uh, semantics around that, um, you know, people calling people dumb, right. Used to have things to do with mutism and being Mm -hmm. deaf and all of that sort of stuff. And so even the language that we use lends itself to this impression that we have. And certainly for a long, long time, we didn't know, right. We didn't know about sort of neurology and things. We didn't know that, there could be oral motor issues or that mm-hmm. there could be issues with the neuronal delivery of thoughts to your mouth. We just thought if you can't talk, that must mean that you have nothing to say because it mm-hmm. was very simplistic back then. Yeah. And I think it's so deeply rooted that we have trouble kind of letting go of those assumptions. Mm-hmm. I have friends who are immigrants, who are doctors, who have thick accents. And they tell me that people really find it hard to believe that they're educated and that they're doctors because, and even after they say like, look, I'm a doctor and I I went Mm -hmm. to this medical school or whatever, people still treat them kind of in a demeaning way because Mm -hmm. there's something about the way you speak that makes you form an impression of that person. I'm interested, you mentioned kind of being, going from being with your family all the time and then when you moved over here, you were kind of isolated. So how did, how did you begin to, to learn English personally, like with your, your parents not around and kind of being isolated yourself? I'm just curious, like from a personal aspect, how did you begin to pick up the language? Yeah. So I went to school. They just threw me into the middle school, which seemed like a good idea, like, you know, immersion, right? So you just go and they did have ESL, English for Second Language Mm -hmm. Learners. And so I did a class and I remember there were two of us and in the school. So you can imagine it wasn't, you know, a huge, um, diverse population. And I remember just going and being really upset the night before because I didn't, know how to ask for the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And so memorizing how to say that, because that seemed like a really important thing that if I didn't know how to say, you know, yeah. might lead to some really emergency situations. And then being really upset because my aunt was like, say bathroom. And I couldn't say it. It's Korean doesn't have the th or mm-hmm. r sounds. So I was like, bathroom. And yeah. she was like, no, 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 nobody's going to understand that. So she was like, okay, we're going to go for lavatory. And I was like, lavatory. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, okay, good enough. And then when I got to the school and I'm asking for lavatory, they like thought that I was asking for the science lab, mm. you know, because like 
Asian kid uh, who's a student. You, yeah. They're yeah. supposed to be, those Asians are supposed to be good in science. And so oh, that man. leading to, that led to kind of a, and I remember that night, like coming home and just crying and being mm-hmm. like, I, I have like become this person who doesn't know how to speak, who doesn't understand anything. And then it got even worse when I started learning English receptively to the point where I could understand, but I still couldn't speak very well. Mm -hmm. And so everybody still thought I couldn't really, you know, like understand because that's what you assume. And so I realized once I could start understanding what people were saying, I started realizing that people were just like, these kids were talking about me in front of me and making mm-hmm. fun of my accent and my, you know, weird broken English and all of that sort of stuff. So it was a very shaming, like shameful, traumatic experience that I think to this day makes me kind of insecure. And, you know, and so obviously this is something that is really, really close to my heart. And then when I found out that there are these people who are non-speakers with these diagnoses and, you know, we had assumed that they just, you know, had cognitive, severe cognitive deficits. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden came to find out that uh, some of them, some of them whom I had known, even as kids, because I was friends with their parents, that they started uh, learning a different way of communicating that didn't involve oral motor. Mm -hmm. And were able to spell out things, it just, it just broke me. I just yeah. remember just crying and being like, I, I can't think about anything else. I can't mm-hmm. talk about anything else. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was originally going to ask you like how this interest kind of bled into your adult life and then into your, your newest novel, Happiness Falls, but it really does sound like, and I, you can correct me if I'm like putting words in your mouth or if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but it really does sound like it's something that, like you said, you've been kind of thinking about your entire life and, and be learning about these different genetic conditions and, and situations. It's almost like, did it almost feel like cathartic to write a character who couldn't convey the things they wanted to verbally because of the experience that you had as a child? Oh, absolutely. I mm-hmm. really think that that's what led to my wanting to have a character like that mm-hmm. in the book and also to, you know, doing the work that I do with non-speakers. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I actually did think a lot about. Like it um, is my making an analogy between my immigrant experience and what my non-speaking students go through, for example, mm-hmm. who have autism and who, you know, those types of conditions. Is that not fair? Like, am I making an analogy that is offensive to them? Because mm-hmm. theirs is so much more involved. And so I actually asked them for their sort of permission in mm-hmm. a way. I said, look, you know, I'm writing an author's note right now about this experience and why I chose to write this book. And I want to know, is my talking about that in terms of being somebody who came over from, you know, Korea, not speaking one language temporarily, Mm -hmm. you know, it was only for two years or so that I couldn't speak. How does that seem to you? And what was so amazing was that they so eloquently said, what you say is 
actually your experience is your experience. And it also helps people to understand what our experience is. Mm -hmm. And they sort of said, you know, hearing you talk about your experience, feeling like that actually makes me feel less alone. And so please talk about it. And that just made me just just so relieved and also just so grateful that yeah, that I have the opportunity to do that, that I have the platform to sort mm-hmm. of talk about that through my book and through, you know, podcasts like this and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And I want to get to, I want to get to your novel happiness falls in just a second, but I want to yeah. touch on speaking of the word happiness. I want to make sure I touch on that really briefly, that like concept of happiness. <laughs> and this is something yes. that I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years. And you mentioned kind of the like two years where you were learning how to communicate in English and like having that very like isolated feeling. And like you said at the very beginning, this idea where like, in theory, you as a family, you had more and you should be happy, but it was really, really hard to be happy. So like for you, was the transition to like the concept of happiness to actually feeling happy? Did that sort of come along with the ability to, to once again, communicate with the world around you? Or I guess, how did that sort of transition to you going from like, I'm supposed to be happy to like, oh, I actually do find joy in my day-to-day life now. Yeah, um, that's such a good question. I'm not sure that I fully understand myself, which is one of the Mm. reasons why I wanted to write about it because that's when I write. I write to figure out what I think about something when I don't understand something. And I, for a long time, I was, I would say, unhappy. And, you know, because of, just the feeling less than and all of that sort of stuff and the the loss of closeness with my parents and all of that sort of stuff. And eventually I found my way, you know, when I went away to high school, I did theater and music so that those were moments of joy, of course. I've always found so much joy in the arts and the act of creation and then going to college and and slowly finding a sense of competence and confidence again. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely that. But I think my interest in happiness really does have a lot to do with this concept of realizing that happiness really is subjective mm-hmm. and that it's not necessarily something that you can predict. Like the one of the things that I talk about in the novel is the lottery winner study, which yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You I, yep. probably, yeah. You probably know about it and you probably talked about it on this podcast probably. Mm-hmm. And that lottery winners are not necessarily like, does that, that does not necessarily bring happiness. And there's a, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that, but I remember encountering that in college and thinking back to what people said about, Oh, you're going to America. That's like winning the lottery. Mm. And, you know, so it was really resonated for me. And I think it really made me think about the concept of the relativity of happiness, which is what my novel discusses. The yeah. One of the characters, the dad goes missing and the father who goes missing, it turns out, was working on a theory of happiness called the happiness quotient theory, mm-hmm. where he is positing that how happy you feel is relative to your expectations and to your baseline, your mm-hmm. your conception of your ordinary life, whatever that is. So actually the lower you can make your expectations and the lower you can make your baseline view of yourself and of your life, 
the happier you will be with whatever is there because that's sort of what you compare it to. For me, I think about it a lot of like, I think it was Joseph Heller said it like the, it was at a party with Kurt Vonnegut and like there's some hedge fund manager, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there, like, so there's some hedge fund manager there who like seemed miserable, but was like, had all this money. And I think Kurt Vonnegut said to Joseph Heller, like this man made more money this week than you'll ever make in your life. And Joseph Heller was like, that's all right. I have something that he'll never have. I have enough. And like, I think a lot about that because I, I was in a long, long relationship where I was for near the end of it, I was very unhappy all the time. And like, we had a beautiful house and like externally people saw what looked like a very wonderful life. And I was very, very miserable. And now I'm in a much, much healthier relationship. And like, maybe we have a little bit less, but I am so much happier. And it is like, I think a lot about like that, the happiness quotient that you're just talking about. And not just because I got an advanced reader of your book, but (laughs) because of like, it really resonated with me because of that idea of like reestablishing in your own mind, what you actually want and what you need and how you can achieve it. And just like all of these concepts of like understanding what will actually make you happy versus what you think should make you happy, I think is something that most people don't do, especially in like the world today. Like every person who publishes a book needs to be a best-selling author or every person in sales needs to hit the president's club. Like everyone needs that greatest thing where I have found happiness by like being like, this is actually what I want. I didn't really realize it. And so, um, you know, blending that into your novel. And and I will say for people, I I, I want to clarify, like there's a lot more in the novel of just like, are people happy or not? Like you said, someone goes missing and there's a whole (laughs) lot more. Actually, before we dive in too much more, do you want to kind of give an intro to the novel? Because this episode is going to come out like right when the book comes out. So unless people got an advanced copy like I did, they probably haven't read it yet. Awesome. So can you want to yes. describe it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I got so excited. <laughs> no, no, I got so excited too. We're like both, you know, just jumping the gun here. Yeah. yeah. So Happiness Falls is a story about a family that's thrown into crisis when the father goes missing. They're a biracial family, Korean and American, white meaning white, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, the Korean yeah. mother, uh, white father. And They live in the Northern Virginia area and they have three kids. And one of them, Eugene, who's 14 years old, has a dual diagnosis of autism and something called mosaic Angelman syndrome, which is very rare. And he can't speak as a Mm -hmm. result. And he is the only person who was, was he's the person who was with the father when he went missing. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's very, very important that the family and the police be able to communicate with him. And that's sort of the beginning situation, the complication Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything sort of, uh, you know, comes out of that. And something I want to ask you about, like the the structure of the story is people are often drawn to a, like people are drawn to like clock ticking down type mysteries. They are often drawn to a separate section, which is like family dramas. And then a lot of people are drawn to like literary novels where they talk about big ideas. This has all of that in there, all (laughs) wrapped up into one incredible book. And so like, as the author who is trying to have these big concepts and these challenging things, all while kind of putting it into a mystery, like how did you go about, we were talking before about like the the length of time it takes you to write novels. And so how do you go about like having a novel that asks and answers big questions 
while also keeping that like keeping people guessing and the edge of their seat type of situation like what came first for you as the writer when you were putting this all together yeah so what definitely came together first for me were the ideas mm-hmm. I had before I even started and also the characters this family yeah. I love yeah. this family I've written short stories about them um going back like I think I started writing about this family 13 years ago and when I first almost when I first started writing creative fiction when I was in my 40s and so this family has been with me for a long time. This voice, uh, which is Mia, the 20-year-old kind of hyper-analytical, snarky college mm-hmm. student who's very intellectual. She, her voice has been with me for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And so the family has been with me. And I knew that I wanted to write something about this happiness quotient idea that I'd been playing around with for a long time. And so I had sort of this Venn diagram of like, I want to interrogate concept of happiness and on the one hand and uh, another, and then I had another circle that was oral fluency, you know, what right. are those two passions that I talked about Yeah, and they're going to merge together. And then I thought, okay, what is a good container for all of these stories that I have about this family that I want to tell that explore Mm -hmm. these concepts. And my first novel was a literary court and drama that had murder mystery types of, you know, Mm -hmm. done it, how done it, why done it kind of thing too. And I think I'm drawn to that because I'm not the most patient person. (laughs) So (laughs) I like, I get hooked into something. Yeah you know, like on page one, and then I will have a lot of patience and go through a lot of asides and tangents once I have that question that needs to be answered in my Mm. mind. And as a writer too. So having a mystery at the core where this character that I really love, the father goes missing and these other characters, the other members of the family are distraught and not knowing what's going on. And I, as a writer, didn't know what happened to the father. Mm. And so I knew that the only way that I could figure out what happened to the father and find out is by getting my butt in this writing chair and, you know, going into my writing closet every day and actually writing. And so it was like um, an incentive for me as a writer. Mm -hmm. And also I do like the idea that you have some urgent question that needs to be answered and that that's the through line for the story. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like when you have that as a container for the stories that you want to tell, I think it gives you, or at least I hope this is true, I, <laughs> that the readers have a little more grace and patience for some of the tangents and some of the asides that you know, you might be like, why am I hearing this story about these characters when they were like five years old in Korea mm-hmm. running around doing a Vulcan mind meld with each other? <laughs> well, you know, like it, it does tie in at some mm-hmm. point. And so if I tried to tell that as just Lynch short stories, I'm not sure that it would capture as much of a wide audience. And I guess putting it in the in the framework of a missing person type of story I think gave me a little bit of more of a latitude to Mm -hmm. do that and to do crazy things like put really, really tangential sides and footnotes and things like that. 
yeah, so I tried to have this Venn diagram of like three circle Venn diagram with a missing person mystery on top and, you know, and then where they intersect in the middle is sort of mm-hmm. hopefully the ending, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, did it feel, because for people who I may not know, I can't imagine they don't, your first book, Miracle Creek, was everywhere. It won multiple awards. It's an incredible book. And it was your debut novel. This being the kind of follow-up, I'm just curious, like, did it feel, and you could flat out tell me yes or no, but like, did it feel like added pressure, like stress knowing that like people had an expectation now? Oh, completely. (laughs) In in different ways too. So there was like the expectation of like, there are definitely going to be from a commercial perspective, like, uh, you know, people who liked Miracle Creek are going to probably want a similar experience Mm. maybe I don't know like you know Miracle Creek was had a lot of courtroom drama elements this one doesn't really it has a little bit but not too much you know are they going to be expecting a the similar kind of voice Miracle Creek had seven POV characters Mm -hmm. you know who are telling their stories in third person and this one has one point of view character in you know, who's kind of snarky and can get kind of annoying and how, you know, how much she overthinks things. And so there was that kind of a concern. So there Mm -hmm. were just, yeah. So there were all these expectation issues and also like the, the thing of, is this too much alike? My first book, is it Mm -hmm. not enough? Like my first book. So there are so, so many different things. And also for my first book, when I was writing it, I didn't expect that to actually be be published. Mm. So I'm sitting in my little writing closet right now and I'm looking up at the sign that I um, put in front of me that says in big, bold letters, this is not a novel. Mm -hmm. I put this over my computer screen when I was writing Miracle Creek because I wanted to remind myself, this is my first novel. This is my first attempt at a novel. It's not, it's probably not going to be made into an actual book. Mm. Like, you know, because I had heard from so many people, your first novel, it's your practice, you put it away in a drawer and then you write the real thing later. And so I felt free to experiment with voices and having seven POV characters and having, you know, a Mm -hmm. kind of murder mystery, not, not having any idea what actually happened. And with this one, the pressure as you talk about it, like, because my husband came into the room one day and he was like, uh, you know, that sign that says, this is not a novel. That's actually not true. You have a contract. (laughs) You have an editor who has given you a deadline. And so it actually needs to be a novel. And I was like, this is such a good point. Mm -hmm, Yeah. But I really wanted to keep it up there. So I actually hand wrote in, this is not a, missing person novel just to have something in there yeah oh, I love it well the, the book is amazing I absolutely adore it I have one more question before you go you're, I mean, you've been very gracious for your time you're very busy right now so <laughs> I always end every episode by having just a recommendation of any kind by the author it can be a book it can be a tv show it could be a recipe it could be anything at all just something you think more people should know about yeah I'm so glad that you asked this okay so it's a movie mm-hmm the last movie that I saw in a theater and it was unbelievable. And I really want everyone to be talking about it. It's called Past Lives. Have you heard of it? Okay, so I have heard of it. I'm interested to hear you explain why you love it so much. The reason why is my boss 
<laughs> literally told me yesterday, she slacked me. She said, have you seen this movie yet? I said, I have not. And she said, your homework is to watch it because I would need someone to talk to about it. So go ahead. Oh, yeah. Tell your boss that she can talk to me about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a debut film by Celine Song, who is a Korean, Canadian, American filmmaker and director. And it's, from what I understand, it's based on her sort of life story. Mm -hmm. She is an immigrant. Um, She immigrated from Korea to Canada when she was 12. So very similar. So you can see why I might be drawn to something like this, but it was just a beautiful film. And it's about these two kids who at 12 years old, a boy and girl who are sort of at the head of the class. Korea has these crazy weekly academic competitions and you're Mm -hmm. ranked. And so the girl was usually on top, but sometimes the boy would be, and then she would cry because she would be so mad about it. She was very ambitious. And so when she emigrated from Korea and moved away, he was so upset that And they were best friends and they clearly had crushes on each other. And he was so upset that he just didn't really say a proper goodbye. And so the movie sort of explores two other times in their later lives when he reaches out to her, you know, Mm -hmm. through Facebook and they reconnect and it's exploring that. And it is just so beautiful. Um, Just the emotional sort of ups and downs that the movie explores, just the poignancy and the cinematography is just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I just, the acting is unbelievable. There's these scenes where it's the protagonist, the immigrant um, woman and her husband, who is American white, having dinner with and spending a lot of time with this guy who comes in and who, who doesn't really speak English very well. And it is just so awkward in like the most <laughs> amazingly exquisite way. Mm-hmm. And what's what really resonated for me is I had this experience. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, you know, when I came, when I was 11, I had a boy that, you know, was, we were best friends and we were kind of like, we had a crush on each other clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were 11 and we were one and two in the class. And so it's just the parallels were just yeah. striking. And he did reach out to me when I was in college, but I was really busy and whatever. So I didn't actually respond. And in this movie, the protagonist does respond. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a window into like, oh, I wonder what could have like been, what, what might have been. Yeah. And I love the what ifs and the parallel lives and yeah. the yeah. multiverse and all of that sort of stuff. So it was really uh, wonderful for me. But like my friends that I went with who are not Korean immigrants, uh, mm-hmm. they loved it. It's just a gorgeous film. And I highly recommend that people go see it. Well, you are the second person in two days to tell me. So I'll be watching it this weekend. It's, okay. it's, I'm very excited for it. And speaking of things that people need to check out, Happiness Falls is so, so wonderful. I was so excited when your name came through my email and I was like, immediately responded to your publicist saying, can I please have Angie on? And I'm so glad you said yes. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Adam. I loved our discussion and I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you. 
Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.